to uh, invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3, as we continue our study in the book of Mark chapter 3. Our scripture reading will come from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. The scriptures read, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, and we ask, God, that your word would dwell richly within us, that we might sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our heart. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we had concluded Mark's record of the five conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders. Five conflicts that he had had with the religious leaders, the last being a conflict over the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was the pinnacle of the, the things that the Pharisees held in greatest regard and to sin on the Sabbath to them was a strict offense. Sabbath, as we looked at last week, the Sabbath was given specifically to Israel, as it says in Exodus chapter 31, and it was given to Israel for the purpose of rest and for the purpose of remembrance. But what the Pharisees had done is that they had added their own laws on top of the Sabbath, their own application to the law to such an extent that it no longer became a blessing, it no longer became a day of rest, it no longer became a day of remembrance for the people, but it became a burden for the people. 
And Jesus very well knew that their legalism was far beyond anything that was biblical, and to expose the callousness of their own heart, the callousness of the Pharisees, what Jesus does in that fifth and last conflict is that he exposes them through the healing of an individual who had a withered hand. He did good on the Sabbath. He had compassion on the Sabbath. And when he had healed that man, the Pharisees who were watching him didn't rejoice. They didn't have great joy. They didn't have compassion. Instead, a feeling hard of pity and compassion upon that man, they were infuriated. And that is why the Bible says in verse 6 of chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus was public enemy number one to the religious leaders. But to the people, he was a celebrity. He had grown in fame. And that is what we see here in chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. That is the background as we see the popularity of Jesus grow among the masses. And this provides the context prior to him selecting the 12 disciples. So let's take a look at that at this time. The popularity of Jesus to the masses in verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed. And it says, from Jerusalem, Emea, beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sion. Again, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came. Verse 10, for it healed many, and the result of all of those who afflicted pressed around him in order to touch him. All around Israel, from Tyre up in, up in the northwest and Sidon up in the northwest, all the way as far south of Jerusalem, which was Idumea, all the way across the Jordan River on the east, his fame had spread all around Israel. He was becoming very, very well known, and virtually all of Israel heard about who Jesus was and what he was doing. All of these people began to flock to Jesus almost as if it was going to be something in which they'd never see ever again. The blind would see, the, the deaf would hear, the dumb would speak, the lame would walk, demons would be cast out. Never in the history of Israel had they seen something like this. Never in the history of Israel would they ever see someone like Jesus. Miraculously heal people, completely heal people, instantaneously cast out demons and heal individuals. No one would ever come ever again like the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And his impact all across Israel would be unmatched for all of history. So much so, they were pressing against him, and he sometimes would climb into a boat, like in the Sea of Galilee, and teach the people from a ways away, so that he would not be crowded in. Everyone wanted to touch him, so that he, they could be healed. And the Bible tells us that he also, he also confronted many who were possessed by demonic spirits, and he cast those demonic spirits out. He would tell them, don't tell anybody. They would shout out, what? You are the Son of God. When the spirits saw him, when the unclean spirits, verse 11, saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. It says in verse 13, he warned them not to say anything about him. Why? It's not because they were lying. In fact, these, these demons were telling the truth. They were telling the truth, saying, you are the son of God. They knew 
who Jesus was. They believed who Jesus was. In fact, do you realize that sometimes I think the demons, demons likely have a better theology than many Christians do. Demons have been around for a long time, thousands of years. It's not like demons will die off and, and have baby demons or whatever it might be. No, they've been around for a long time, and they know what is true, and they know what is false. They just don't accept it. They just don't embrace it. But they know Jesus is the Son of God. They believe when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, they very well know. When Jesus makes claims to be God, they very well know. They believe, James says, they believe and they shudder because they know who Jesus is. And that's a testimony, too, for Christians. Some Christians think, well, if I just believe, if I just believe in who Jesus is, I'll be saved. Well, demons believe. Demons are not saved. If I just assent, some, some Christians believe, if I just assent in my mind, mind to say, well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus has died for my sins, demons know the same thing. But demons don't embrace Jesus. Demons do not bow the knee to Jesus. Demons are not changing because they, 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 they're not turning from sin. They are against everything Jesus stands for. And Jesus doesn't need the free publicity that came with demons. He doesn't need them to say who he is, and he would not want that either. He just says he doesn't want that. He doesn't want those who oppose his message to adopt a part of his message. Satan's greatest weapon is not some sort of scary figure in Halloween where he carries a pitchfork and scares people. The Bible tells us that the demonic, the demonic weapon is false teaching. It's to deceive people to believe that which is not true. It is that demons would take that which is true and mix it with error. A demon, if a demon could drive today, I suppose they would love to have a fish on the back of their car or to have a bracelet that says WWJD so that what? You might think, hmm, maybe what they're saying is true. And they would mix it with error. Jesus didn't want any of that sort of association. Later on, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would accuse Jesus of being in collusion with these demons because they were so opposed to who he was. Jesus would have nothing to do with the demonic world in terms of them somehow partnering, adopting some sort of alliance with him or association with him. But the fame and the popularity of Jesus spread like wildfire throughout all of Israel. It gives the dimensions all throughout Israel of where he was in verse 8 of chapter 3. Now, from a human standpoint, from a human standpoint, they would see this particular time as the zenith of Jesus' ministry. They would see this as the pinnacle of his success or his career, but God knew their heart. It would say later on that many of them would leave. And in fact, if somebody were in this particular position from a human standpoint, they would say, well, maybe you should leverage Maybe you should leverage the popularity that you have. Maybe you should leverage the popularity of the people. The masses are coming to you. They're listening to you. They want to be with you. And so why don't you leverage that and revoke change within the world by the masses that would come. But Jesus knew their heart. In John 6, 66, it says that many would then begin to leave. Why? Because rather than softening the message... 
making the message more acceptable to the greater populace, Jesus began to teach very clearly some of the demands of discipleship, what it meant to truly follow him. He began to clearly make the message very pointed so that they might know what it would take if one would follow Jesus. He wasn't making it a softer message. If anything, he would continue to proclaim what was true, and that is the way would be very narrow, and people began to fade away. Many of them were just fair-weather fans of Jesus. So what happens that Jesus doesn't try to make his message palatable for the masses? No. And as people began to fade away, Jesus moves from his very public ministry, which will continue on in the book of Mark, but he begins to spend more and more time with the twelve in a private ministry, in a personal ministry. And this is the inception of that when he appoints twelve disciples who become the twelve apostles. That is the crux of today's message. Who are these twelve? Who are these twelve apostles who have come? These twelve disciples that are chosen? Many who think about the twelve perhaps have high, elevated, glowing thoughts about who these twelve disciples were. After all, many of their names might remind you of large cathedrals or churches. Think of St. Andrew's or St. Peter's Basilica or St. John's, whatever it might be. They think of them as saints because they're so elevated by the Catholic Church. They were called the Twelve. Some think of them very highly because of the book of Revelation, too, in which each of the gates, which is made of a singular pearl, will have the name of one of the Twelve on them. And if one of the Twelve apostles were to step into this room, even this morning, for hypothetically, people might venerate them. But the reality is that the twelve whom Jesus chose, these twelve were frankly everyday people, ordinary people. In fact, there would be twelve people that you and I might not even choose. Some of them had even greater hang-ups than many of you. They were a ragtag bunch of men who were not of great fame, not of great character, not of great quality that the world would choose. They were a motley group of men who were often involved with infighting, jockeying for power or arguing or having a variety of different backgrounds that you and I would probably think these folks don't fit with one another. How can they have a cohesive group among themselves? They had weaknesses that stuck out all across the pages of the New Testament. Maybe you can relate to some of them. Jesus says many things about these 12. He points out to them many times that they're slow learners. For example, he says to them in Matthew 15, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand? Or in Luke 24, 25, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Is that you and I? We're so slow in our learning. Jesus needs to teach us time and time again, sometimes the same lesson over and over. Some of them were prideful and selfish. 
They were prideful and selfish. When Jesus was walking along, he was talking about his imminent death. And what were they doing behind them? They were talking among themselves, not about his death. So insensitive they were to Jesus and what he was speaking of. They were talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, they spent a lot of time talking about that. The mother of James and John, in fact, went to Jesus, her nephew, and asked if her sons could sit on the right and left hand of the throne. And the other disciples, they were incensed. They were upset that James and John had beat them to the punch. And here Jesus was talking about his death, selfishness and pride. Peter, in particular, would be so bold as to say, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Matthew 26, 33. How many of us have thought more highly of ourselves than we ought? Not only were they prideful and selfish, not only were they slow learners, they were also people who Jesus said had small faith, little faith. He would say in the, in the Gospel of Matthew four times, oh, you of little faith. In the Gospel of Mark, how is it that you have no faith? Here they were in the presence of Jesus. They were walking with Jesus, seeing Jesus every day, pro producing these miracles among the people, and yet they had little faith. In fact, their faith often rested on themselves. After Jesus had died, they went back fishing. Where was their faith? People who had followed Jesus for all of that time. And Jesus not only noted that, but sometimes they lacked power. They lacked spiritual power. They tried to do that which was on their own, by their own power, their own strength. They wondered, why is it that I, we cannot cast these demons out? Why is it that we can't cast these demons out? Well, they never went to God in prayer. When Jesus told them to stay awake and watch while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told them time and time again, and they fell asleep three times. He warned them to be watchful of temptation. Is that you and I? Do we ever lack, lack the desire to rest upon God and what God can do? Are we prideful or selfish? Are we people who are slow to learn? Or do we have a small faith, not believing God for what God can do? Does that sound like you and I? That was these disciples. That was these disciples. And I think we can relate to many of their characteristics. We look at their backgrounds. Jesus didn't choose people. Jesus didn't choose these people because they were leaders in their community. He didn't choose any of these disciples because they were what? Political or powerful or particularly wealthy, and if they were wealthy like Matthew, it was because they had gained wealth through unscrupulous ways. He didn't choose people that the world would choose, didn't choose people that we might even choose. If it were us, we might choose people who are the policy makers, the movers and the shakers, the people who were powerful or influential. Jesus chose people that the world and their eyes would despise. He chose this group of individuals whom it says he chose the 12. And these 12 would be the disciples. Sometimes you've heard that they're called apostles. Well, later on, they would be apostles. Disciples simply means those who are students or learners. That's the word disciple. That's what it means, a learner. And in the beginning, they were learners. They all learned 
from Jesus. Later on, they became the apostles. They became known as the apostles. They were the messengers. That's what that word means, messengers or sent ones. From learner to the sent ones, to the messengers, that is what they became. But they needed that time with Jesus to be trained. And by the time Jesus chose these people, Jesus' ministry on earth was very short. It was just about three years or so, three years of his ministry. And by the time he chose these 12, he was already roughly halfway through his entire ministry. So he had roughly, what, 18 months, maybe at the most two years, to choose and train these 12 who would follow him and carry on the message of Christ through the world. They were an interesting group of individuals. Well, let's take a look at these individuals here. The first is the Apostle Peter. Peter, whose also name was also Simon. In Mark chapter 1, verse 30, we are already introduced to Peter. Peter was married, and he was at his mother-in-law's. You remember the account where Jesus healed his mother-in-law? 1 Corinthians 9.5 tells us that Peter also took with him a wife on his apostolic mission. So we know Peter had his own family. Peter had also a previous name, as we know here. His name was Simon. Simon would be the name of what Jesus would call him when he wanted to refer to Peter's former life when Peter was not behaving like he should. He would call him by his former name. When Jesus, who gave him the name Peter or Cephas, it would mean rock. That is what Jesus wanted him to be, more stable, more solid like a rock. And in time, he became that. But of all the disciples, he was the most bold. He was the most outspoken he was the one who spoke oftentimes before he thought. Sometimes he would think perhaps with his mouth. He'd make promises such as, I will never deny you and not keep his word. He was an apostle who would learn things the hard way. He was an apostle who would be the only one to rebuke Jesus for saying that he was going to go die on the cross and how wrong Peter was. Yet in the book of Acts, it was Peter. It was Peter who boldly proclaimed, who proclaimed that Jesus was the only way. And thousands would come to know the Savior through the preaching of Peter. In fact, it is Peter who dominates the 12, first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. It's all about Peter, because Peter was the leader of all the other apostles. Peter, we know as the one who's impulsive. Peter is the one who learns things the hard way, continually making mistakes, becoming angry, losing faith, weeping, even going back to fishing after Jesus died. But it was Peter who would later be chosen be chosen, and he would be the one who would lead the other 12. His brother, Andrew, the second disciple, Andrew. In the New Testament, he was more of an individual who was in the background. He was a servant, although he was close to Christ in that first group. Andrew and John became the Lord's first disciples, and it was Andrew who first brought Peter 
to the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 41 and 42, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Andrew was very much in the shadow of his brother, Peter. You know, Peter was outspoken, he was bold, he was brash, he would make plenty of mistakes, and Andrew was sort of in the background. They'd have fishing business, of course, together, fishing business, and they had a couple of friends, James and John, who would round out the top four. But it seemed to the first four, Andrew was the most quiet. Andrew was the most quiet. He seems to be the one who is the least contentious, the least resentful, the least jealous. The Bible presents Andrew. Andrew as one specifically points out, never specifically point out anything that Andrew would ever do or say anything wrong. That's how it presents Andrew. Never records any, Andrew as doing anything wrong or in a negative light. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It just meant that that doesn't characterize him. Much different than his brother, Peter. Some people are like the Peter, quick on the draw, quick to speak, slow to think about what they're going to say. Some are more like Andrew, thoughtful in what he does. But yet God has places for both. It was Peter who preached at Pentecost and 3,000 became saved. But it was Andrew, this brother of his who was in the background, who when they had the feeding of the 5,000, it was Andrew who brought the little boy who had five loaves and two fishes that eventually fed 5,000. And when some of the Greeks wanted to see Jesus, and Philip brought out some of the Greeks that wanted to see Jesus, well, they went to Andrew. Most people are not like him, I think. Most people say things that they wish they didn't say. But then they had two fishing friends, James and John. The older brother of John, the first cousin of Jesus, James. James, the son of Zebedee. It's like saying, you know, that, that, that they're sons. They're the sons of so-and-so. That's how they're, they're known. He and his brother Jesus called the sons of thunder. Why? Because they had a temper. They had a problem with their anger. And they were easily angry. For example, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when Jesus was traveling through Samaria, and Jesus was traveling through Samaria, they didn't give him a place to stay. They didn't give him a place to stay. He was going to Jerusalem. And so this is what James and John, he and his brothers said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Unquote. You remember the story of Elijah when, when King Ahab, a wicked king, sent some, sent some soldiers to come to get Elijah. In the first party, there's fire that came down from heaven and consumed them. And he sent another one, and the fire came down from heaven and consumed them, etc. There were these individuals, or, or he could have been referring to how Elijah called down, called upon God, and God consumed the offering perhaps in the prophets of Baal. But in either case, either case, James and John were so upset that the Samaritans did not offer Jesus a place to stay. They wanted to destroy them by calling fire down from heaven. James here was also ambitious. He and his brother John, like I mentioned before, had asked their mother to ask 
her nephew, Jesus, if they could sit on the right and left hand of God, a prominent place, a prominent place in what they thought would be an earthly kingdom. They were ambitious. He was ambitious. in a temper, but he also had passion for God. And 14 years later, James would be the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for Christ. And then we're introduced to his brother, John, the brother of John, dubbed again the Sons of Thunder because he too wanted to call down from heaven fire to consume the Samaritans. He was zealous for the truth. He was one who was passionate for what was true. That is a good thing. But apart from Luke and Paul, and you might note this, John, apart from Luke and Paul, was the third most prolific writer of the New Testament. And he was passionate about what was true. But though he was known for his passion for the truth, it took him a while to temper it with love. Love would be something that he would master later on. You might recall in Mark chapter 9, he forbade a man. There was a man who was casting out a demon. And because that man wasn't officially one of the twelve, he was upset that this man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. This is the only time that John writes about himself in his own accord in the New Testament record because after Jesus rebuked him for that, I'm sure he decided to keep his mouth shut and he learned later on about what it meant to love. John will write much more Later on, he wrote the epistles of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. John wrote much about love later on. You know, zeal for the truth is a good thing. But when it's not tempered by love and motivated by love, you don't win God's favor. And in addition, you may not very well win the heart of the person that you're debating. Some people will win an argument but they will lose the heart if it's not motivated by love. Genuine love wants what is God's best for the other person. And John wanted what was true, and he comes out in his writings writing about what was true, and that's a good thing. But if it's not tempered by love, it can come across very brash. I remember having a friend in college many years ago when he first learned about church discipline, and he told his girlfriend about church discipline in such a way, poor girl made her cry because it came across without care, compassion, love for another. He had to learn about his ambition, John did, and about humility later on because his brother and he wanted to sit on the right and left-hand sides of Jesus. But the problem was that they wanted the position not because they were worthy of it, but because they wanted the position because of its influence and his power. Later on, though, we see, even though John was so zealous for what was true, he learned later on about humility because not once does he speak of himself in reference to himself, but instead he speaks of himself in reference to Jesus, meaning that he will write, even in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he records... Even in the epistles, he writes a lot about the subject of love. And it is only John who records the instance of Jesus. 
the humility of Jesus, it is only found in the Gospel of John of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples because he learned what it was, humility and love, not just battling for what was true. That is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The next group of four individuals we hear less about, but still we know some things about them, such as Philip, the fifth name on that list, who was a very practical man. Philip was one of the first to whom Jesus said, follow me, and he did. He sought Christ, and after that he introduced his friend Nathaniel to Jesus. Philip said, come and see. That was the heart of Philip the evangelist who would reach out. He was very practical. He was very pragmatic. That's what characterized Philip. His name means lover of horses. Philip was an individual who was very pragmatic. This is different than the Philip that we see in the book of Acts, by the way. But he was a man whom Jesus chose. He was from the same town as Peter and Andrew and probably knew them for a long time. But the Gospel of John gives us a glimpse of who Philip was. One author writes this, piecing together all the apostles, all that the apostle John records about him, it seems Philip was a classic process person. He was the facts and figures guy, a by-the-book, practical-minded, non-forward-thinking type of an individual. He was the kind who tended to be a corporate killjoy, pessimistic, narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessing with identifying reasons things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist rather than a visionary. That was Philip. Philip was the type of person who was overly concerned about the bottom line. In John chapter 6, for example, when Jesus was going to feed the 5,000, and again, it was more like 15,000, 5,000 men, but they had wives and children, 15,000 men. There in John chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd, was coming to him and said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. He wanted to test Philip. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus knew that he was going to multiply bread and fish, and there was this little boy that was going to come. Here's what Philip said, though. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. In spite of seeing Jesus do miracle upon miracle upon miracle in the past, he basically said, you know what, 200 days of pay, that can't pay for any of these people even to have a snack. It can't be done. We can't feed them. Jesus, Philip was the kind of person who just didn't have this faithful vision for the future. You wouldn't want Philip on some sort of exploratory missions trip. You wouldn't want him on some sort of building project or building committee because it would always be, well, why can't we do this? We can't do this because, ask Philip, there's some reason why we can't do this. We can't raise this amount of funds. We can't go there because it's too dangerous. We can't do that. Glass is always half empty. Philip was one who was perhaps of little faith, not able to see the greatness of the person to whom he's objecting, which was Jesus himself, the pessimism of Philip perhaps fed into his hesitancy as well. In John chapter 12, when some Greeks came to ask Philip if he, they could speak to the Messiah, you know, they came to Philip. Philip didn't take them to Jesus. He took them to Andrew. 
Andrew, the background brother of Jesus, uh, of, of Peter? Maybe it was protocol. There's some hesitancy perhaps there. He failed to see how the Savior of the world could see and feed 5,000 or 15,000 people. Then in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. It says there in John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus' response to that, have I been so long with you? This is at the end of Jesus' life. After a year and a half, Jesus is about to die. This is the Last Supper. John 14, he's telling everyone goodbye. I am going to the cross. And Philip says, well, just, just show us the Father. And, and, and that's enough for us. Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because he missed the big picture. He missed the big picture. You spent a year and a half, two years with me, Philip, seeing the miracles and the healings and the things that I have taught, the claims to being God himself. And Philip comes up with this line. His faith was all in a little box not able to see outside of what God can do, the great things that God can do. But what did he do? He did bring Nathaniel. He did bring Nathaniel, the sixth disciple that we look at. Nathaniel was a friend of Philip's. It says in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. A little glimpse of Philip's profile, but this is what Nathaniel says. I mean, we, we know that he appeals in this passage, by the way, John 1.45. He appeals to Nathaniel in John 1.45 and says, look, this is who, what the scriptures say. So we know that Nathaniel's very well versed in the scriptures. Nathaniel was a man who knew the scriptures, but he had his biases. He had his prejudices because the first thing Nathaniel says was this. Nathaniel said to him, Quote, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That little town over there, that little hamlet, can the Messiah, any, anybody good come out of Nazareth? Really? That was Nathaniel. Skeptical. And yet, even in Nathaniel's heart, Jesus compliments him. He looks at Nathanael's heart when Nathanael comes, and he says this, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You know the thing about Nathanael? Sincere, pure, innocent, transparent. He had his hang-ups just like any other of the disciples. But unlike this, the Pharisees and unlike the religious leaders, he was pure in heart. He was transparent there is no deceitfulness in his heart. And though he was prejudiced at first, Nathaniel was. He ministered according to tradition. According to church tradition, he ministered in Persia and in India, and he continued to preach. And some accounts say in church history that he was tied up in a sack, he was thrown into the sea. Others say that he was crucified. Somehow he died a martyr's death for the faith. That's Philip, and that is Nathaniel. Nathaniel was the one who died a martyr's faith in such a way. 
Philip brought him to the Savior. And we've been looking at, too, the seventh disciple, that of Matthew. That of Matthew. We were introduced to Matthew already. Matthew was formerly named Levi. He was a tax collector who sat by the side of the road, hated by the Jews, because why? He, even though he was a Jew, he was a traitor to the Jews because he collected taxes on behalf of Rome. And he would oftentimes, which was the case of those who were tax collectors, rip off his own people by charging them more than he ought to. But when Jesus called him, when Jesus called him, he got up and he followed Jesus, leaving all, bringing even his friends, as we saw already, bringing his friends, sinners, that they might find Christ. And God used him to write the Gospel of Matthew. And tradition says that he ministered to Jews before he also died as martyrs, possibly being burned at the stake. Sixthly, we meet a man many of you know. His name was Thomas. Eighthly, Thomas was called Didymus, means twin. Many of you know him as Doubting Thomas. One author writes, quote, it probably is fair, however, to say that Thomas was a somewhat negative person. He was a worrywart. He was a brooder. He tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. Pessimism rather than doubt seemed to be his besetting sin. From what we know of Thomas, he wasn't a particularly positive leader whatsoever. One day when Jesus was going to return to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, you probably remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He's going to go to Bethany, and in Bethany, there were enemies of Jesus who were waiting to kill him. So when Jesus announced, says that we're going to go. We're going to go to Bethany. And so all of you come on along. That's what Thomas says. John eleven sixteen, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. In other words, he's rolling his eyes, that's the picture here, and saying, you know, your enemies are there, but hey guys, why don't we all go? We're all just going to get killed anyways. That's how it is. Completely uninspiring. Completely negative. Like Jesus, you're going to go to a place where all your enemies are. Let us also go that we may die with him. How would you feel? Such a downer. Such a person who's going to say, a pessimist to say, you know what? Today is a good day to die. John 14, Jesus tells them about the fact that he's going to prepare a way for them, you know? He's going to prepare a way for them. Again, this is at the Last Supper. He's going to prepare a way for them, and this is, a, this is what he's telling them. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas pipes up again. This is what he says. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Such a downer again. And then lastly, at the resurrection, you know, all the disciples were there. Jesus appears, except for Thomas. He's the only one that's not there. All the disciples are marveling at Jesus. And when Thomas comes, he says, they says, verse 25, unless I see his hands and the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Later on, after he does, he says, my Lord and my God. 
You know, I feel badly for Thomas. Why? Because can you imagine to yourself, it was you, you would die. Okay, if you were in the 12 and you were like Thomas, you'd die. And nearly everything, except for that one verse perhaps, that you said wrong was recorded in the scriptures for everyone to read. Terrible. That guy said all the wrong things all the wrong time. You know, when you say something wrong and I say something wrong, we hope people's memory is short. But here, the record of Thomas, all this. Come on, everybody. Time to die today. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Are you going to tell us? No, I'm not going to believe until I actually touch it. We learn from his negative example. But maybe that is you. Maybe you are like that Eeyore to Winnie the Pooh. Such a downer. The characteristic of Thomas, though, however, you can take away, was that he was loyal. He was devoted. He didn't say, come on, guys, time to go the other way. No, he said, time to go and die with Jesus. And according to tradition, it was Thomas who carried the gospel to India, and he died by being run through with a spear. He too died standing up for Christ because God transformed his life. Now, we know the least about the last four, except for Judas Iscariot, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James. James, a second James, there's another James in the disciples. Other than his name, there's nothing actually about this James, the son of Alphaeus, that we know anything about. We don't know anything about him. According to tradition, he was stoned to death, he was beaten to death or crucified, something like that. But he was undoubtedly a Christian martyr as well for Jesus. Simon the Zealot, what we know about Simon the Zealot was, well, he was a zealot, and we know about the zealots. The zealots were one of the four major sects of Judaism at that time. Okay, you had the Pharisees, you had the, the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, and you had the zealots. The zealots were your political terrorists. You know, they would come up behind a Roman soldier and stick a knife in his back and then draw back into the shadows because they, wanted, they hated Rome to such an extent. They wanted to take the fight directly to them, and they would use whatever means of, of terrorism in order to do that. Zealots, they would have hated tax collectors. You take a zealot on one hand, and you take Matthew or Levi on the other hand. You've got two polar opposites of people that you would want on the same team. But Simon, tradition says that he took the gospel north took the gospel north and he preached to the British Isles and was later killed for the preaching of the gospel. And we know who Judas was, the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now there was another Judas there, the Judas the son of James, rather obscure also in the text. The tradition says that after Pentecost he went to Turkey to preach and was a powerful testimony of Christ, but he was clubbed to death. Then there's, as I mentioned, Jewish Judas Iscariot. All of these 12, we probably would have not chosen if it were us. Their resumes would have been pathetic. We would not have hired them. All of these 12, God chose. And you know what? They're just like you and I. Why did God choose them? Because 1 Corinthians says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many whitey, not many noble, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which is strong. 
and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. He chooses people like you and I, people who desire to be used of God, like the twelve, so that he may show his glory through people who would otherwise, in this world, never be seen as successes so that God might receive all the glory through ordinary people whom God would do extraordinary things for His church. And God can use you too, you who have difficulties, you who have challenges, you who have hang-ups, just like these 12. Are you one who struggles with anger? One who is a slow learner? One who is pessimistic? One who is critical? One who has your theology in a little box and you cannot see beyond the walls of what you might potentially believe. One who was maybe in the background or one who always says the wrong thing, who always sticks his foot in, the mouth, in his mouth. One who just perhaps nothing much is said about. You feel like you're a nobody? God can make you a somebody and do great things for him just like he did for these 12. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the profile of these 12 because, Lord, we are very much like them. Impulsive, sinful, speaking before we think, perhaps offending others, offending you, and yet, God, you use us by your mercy and by your grace We pray, may you mold us, shape us. Help us, Lord, to have a willing heart to serve you that you might advance your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.